You're listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. To find out more about the Whole Vineyard Church, go to wholevineyard.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Hello. You all look very lovely today. If you don't know who I am, I am Sophie, and I'm going to be reading our reading today. So we're going to be continuing our series in Nehemiah, so I'm going to be reading Nehemiah 1. And it goes, The word of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins with the Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servants Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name." They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. Thank you, Sophie. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you today. And uh, last week we set up uh, this uh, book in our new series looking at Nehemiah. And today I just want to take a deep dive uh, into uh, this chapter, chapter one. And so, um, as we know, uh, Nehemiah is working as a cupbearer to the king in Persia at a place called Susa. And uh, we'll see uh, as in the next chapter that he will be coming to Jerusalem uh, to be part of the restoration and rebuilding of the city and its walls and its gates. Uh, and so before that, we have here in chapter one, I believe, three key elements of what it means to be today, today's man and woman of God. We've talked about uh, this series thinking about future church. What will the church look like in the future? We're also thinking about with everything that's happened and the unrest of uh, the last few years is that what has shown up in the church is that we need to build differently. Is that maybe some of uh, the foundations of our Christian faith uh, were not built on solid ground rather sinking sand. And so we want to think about how do we rebuild in the church so that we can be strong, so that when the storms of life come, we can remain steadfast, we can persevere and not just survive, but actually thrive in our culture. 
And what you see here are three, I believe, three of the most important ingredients of what it means to be today's man and woman of God, what it means to be today's servant of God. And we see uh, in that chapter six times that word servant mentioned. And I think it's really important just at the outset to, to share this and say that what we are as followers of Christ are first and foremost servants of him. Do you know, I, I find that in our culture there are so many competing stories, so many competing narratives is that we can serve ourselves, we can serve other people, we can serve different things, and we can forget that our first priority, our first honor and privilege is to serve the King of Kings, to serve him. And I was thinking about, um, often when I, uh, I sense God is speaking to me, is I'll remember old songs. Does anybody do that? I, I was thinking about an old song from... Uh, well, 30, I've not thought about this song in 30 years. This is when I was about 11 years old. And um, it, it goes like this. I won't sing it to you. Uh, they won't let me in the band. Um, and it goes like this. I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. I want to serve the purpose of God while I am alive. I want to give my life for something that will last forever. Oh, I delight, I delight to do your will. What is on your heart? Show me what to do. Let me know your will and I will follow you. And he goes on to say, I want to see the kingdom of God in my generation. I want to see the kingdom of God while I am alive. I want to live my life for something that will last forever. Oh, I delight, I delight to do your will. You know, this is still the cry of my heart 30 years on. This is the very thing that gets me out of bed. This is the thing that drives me. So, Lord, I want to serve you, the King. I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation because servanthood is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Why? Because it is the very nature of God. It's mentioned that why we're generous because God is generous. Why do we serve? Because God, first and foremost, serves us. Isn't that amazing? That actually, our first thought shouldn't be, how do we serve God and serve people, but actually allow Christ to serve us, which is an extraordinary thing. It's scandalous grace and mercy. But this is what he does, and talks about this in Philippians 2 so well. We see it in demonstrating the life of Christ that Jesus took on the very nature of a servant. He is our servant king. This is the whole gospel of Mark. You see in those 16 chapters, Jesus as the servant king. And this is what we look for, particularly in the vineyard when it comes to us as followers of Jesus, but also to us as leaders, is that what is leadership? Leadership is servanthood. As we have the honor and privilege of washing the feet of people and through Kingdom service, God gives authority. It's not wrought by title and turf. It's not wrought by control. It is wrought by servanthood. And haven't we seen this so beautifully portrayed this last week as people have talked about the life of the queen? We think about her legacy, and I, I talked about this last week, about her faithfulness and her longevity, steadfastness, Amazing witness, but time and time again, I've heard phrases like, she was the ultimate servant queen. She was 
uh, a public servant. So powerful, that witness. To not serve yourself, but to serve God and to serve people. And so if we want to be part of God's big kingdom story of seeing restoration and a rebuilding of the church and, of course, the city that we're a part of, I believe there are three key ingredients to a servant's character. First of all, looking out in compassion. If we want to be one of God's servants, we need to be looking out constantly in compassion. Yes, Nehemiah was greatly concerned, wasn't he, about the city's walls and the city's gates, and we'll see this more and more, because it meant for them huge insecurity and uh, economic deprivation. But it was the people. It was the depressed people were of much more concern to Nehemiah than the shattered walls. This is what drove him, was thinking about the people. We see in verse 3 that the people are in great trouble and in disgrace. And remember, he's a thousand miles away in luxury in a palace. And what is his response? Verse 4 is that he sat down and he wept. This is what drove Nehemiah. The Holy Spirit, initiated by the Holy Spirit, places in him and upon him compassion. And we see this demonstrated by tears. And this just wasn't just a soft cry. When he talks about tears, it's talking about a wailing. There was like an anguish deep in his soul. His concern for these people a thousand miles away. And I found this, that tears, wailing, intercession, compassion, is the necessary groundwork for calling in your life. In the, in the 32 years I've been a Christian, I don't think there's been anything that I've seen bear fruit that has been a desire or a dream in my heart or in my life that hasn't come about by first and foremost tears. That has been the gateway, that has been the groundwork, that has been the fertile soil in order for God to bring about harvest personally for me. And we see this many times. We see this with Jesus, Matthew 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is Jesus. This is his heart of compassion. He saw people that they were lost. They were helpless. And he had compassion on them. And this was pit in your stomach type of compassion. This wasn't just simple uh, or mere sympathy. This is like, oh, I'm so sorry. This was like, drives you so much that you must do something about it. Sympathy and empathy make someone feel, but compassion always turns empathy into action. This is my driver. Uh, when, when, in uh, Luke 19, when Jesus is welcomed into the city as the king. A week before he goes to the cross, he says that Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and he wept. People were celebrating, people were welcoming, and yet Jesus looked over the city and wept. I think we see this so wonderfully portrayed in Acts 17, verse 16, 
Paul, one of his missionary journeys, says that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so you have in these verses, and in that chapter, you have Paul looking at the city, and he is seeing idols, and he is distressed. And the compassion that he feels makes him want to go and do something about it. And so compassion isn't just merely sensing God's broken heart over a lost and broken world, but it's actually an internal jealousy for the glory of God. I don't know if you've ever had this, but you can just look at life and from whatever perspective and you actually have this compassion because you, you see that people are worshipping other things. They're, they're worshipping false gods and idols, which we were only made to worship the one true God, the creator of the universe, the king of kings. There is only one God, and his name is Jesus. This is what humanity was made to worship. This is what he's placed in us. That ache, that chasm deep in our souls, we're restless until we find our God. And so for me, I don't know if I could, well, I struggle to endure existence if Jesus is not glorified, where he is dishonored in the church and where he's dishonored in our world, where his word is dishonored. And throughout history, God has always laid this anguish, he's always laid this burden, this compassion, this innate jealousy upon people who have done extraordinary feats for God. I just think about, over the years, prison reform or Wilberforce with slavery or factory conditions or orphanages and the great Salvation Army, William and Catherine Booth, who's, who's and I love this, and, you know, this is kind of what we're about, soup, soap, and salvation. We're here to, to help people, but also to help them meet Jesus. We want to take care of people's physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. And it all started with compassion. It all started with tears. It all started with seeing a gap, seeing a need. And it's like, I must do something about it. And so God's heart breaks for the city of Hull. And the question for us, for you and for I, this morning, by the Spirit of God is, do our hearts break for this city? Do our hearts break for this city? The second thing is, is, the response is out of a place of compassion is to look up in prayer, to look out in compassion, to look up in prayer. I find it amazing that Nehemiah's first response is prayer. If you're anything like me, sometimes prayer is maybe third, fourth, or fifth down on the list. We might just ring our friend. We might just think, oh, I'm just going to jump into action straight away and do something about it. But actually, the invitation here and the, the template and example and model is that when we sense God's calling and it's wrought in compassion, is that our first response, our instinct, must be to always bow the knee in prayer, to look up in dependence to God. It was immediate, it was spontaneous. Some of us, definitely me, I look to others or I look to myself in self-sufficiency in order to be God's answer. 
That comes down the line. The first thing we must do is take it to God. And what kind of prayer do we see here? We see it's a dependent prayer. It's a genuine prayer. It's a sacrificial prayer. It's reminding God of his promises prayer. So it's confident. It's persistent. This is the kind of language and the heart of prayer that God absolutely loves. But what is overwhelmingly true here is that as you see at the beginning of that prayer is that first and foremost he recognizes who God is that God is great and God is awesome and that is the power of prayer prayer is where we get a vision of God and how big he is and then our problem shrinks and the problem is the problem is is our problems become magnified because we've not seen who God is. Prayer allows us to see and have a revelation of who God is. And so we see here that, God, you can do something about this. And maybe a thousand miles away, it is, a, it is bleak. I know you want to do something because you've set compassion in me by your spirit. And yet I know you are the great God. You are the sovereign God. You are the awesome God. Only you can do something in this situation. And so you see something really powerful, which I think is absolutely imperative to be part of the future church and to rebuild our foundations, is you see Nehemiah's subjective story, his personal, intimate awareness of God in his situation, but not at the expense of his objectivity and his view of God in terms of some basic truths about who God is. They have to be both and. M many of us interpret our feelings and even our God-given compassion and just maybe turn God into someone or something that he's not. And what you have here with Nehemiah is you have both truths, both and. You have that awareness of God's imminence in my situation, which is what he's always doing. He's always getting his hands dirty deep into our scenario, but also recognizing the power and the truth of who God is. He is unique. He is compassionate. He is holy. He is sovereign. He is just. He is powerful. We need to always focus on who God is by his word and in prayer. I love this because it mirrors that amazing prayer in Acts 4 where Peter and John, they're, they're under severe persecution and they go back and they report to the chief priests and the elders all that's been going on. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. What does he say? Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit. And therefore he goes on to say, Lord, consider their threats. Now enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal. Perform signs and wonders through the name of of Jesus, And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. So you have the same framework of prayer. When, we, when we're in trouble, when there's persecution, when we're in testing and trial, we come to God and the first thing we do is we recognize his sovereignty. We recognize his greatness. We recognize that he is in control. So right now, in the midst of the uncertainty of life that we may be experiencing, maybe you're really anxious about your health, maybe you're really anxious about finances, 
Maybe you've experienced family loss, friendship loss. Maybe you're unsure about your future. First of all, come to God in prayer. Recognize that he is awesome. He is great. And he is in control. And so I see there with Nehemiah, I see a boldness. I see a confidence in his communication with God. And I think... This is a real lesson for us as a church that actually it's really healthy as a church to be in this cycle. The part of our rhythm as church is that we're constantly, as we're catching the heart of God in compassion, as we're creating a culture of prayer, is that we're gonna see mourning. That it's good to lament, it's good to mourn. That it's good to pray, it's good to fast. That this is just what we do as Christians because actually it's in that place of of, of brokenness and contrition and heartache, that it's actually a unique place of where we encounter the living God. When things seem to be going all okay and it's like, yeah, just life's great at the moment, it's, it's almost like we take the, the promises of God for granted. Actually, it's in that place of brokenness and need that we experience Jesus in a unique and powerful way. I want to invite you, if you're in that moment, that this is a moment of opportunity for prayer and fasting. To look to God first. And the great thing about fasting is that I think it doesn't just take compassion and then prayer and then we still maybe go and do something about it, but actually incorporated in prayer is fasting because it helps us to slow down. It helps us to hear God. It gives us space to breathe and say, Lord, what is going on here? Maybe God's speaking to us about an emotional relationship that we need to uh, deal with because it's distracting us. Maybe speaking to us about an area of our interior lives, our character. Maybe it gives us clarity of vision, energy, and we align with God's heart. We say no to those things, the basic things of life. It causes us to feast upon the king and look to his purpose. The third thing, and it's just typical of God, isn't it? Like, come on. What, what happens here? The third thing is he looks inward. Nehemiah looks inward with repentance. So even though we've had compassion, even though we go to prayer, God, surely you're just going to do something. No, guess who's to blame? Me. <laughs> I love the language that Nehemiah has in that prayer where he doesn't just talk about the sin of the nation but he includes himself in it. And here you have this like Isaiah 6 moment, don't you, where you get a vision of God, you see who God is. And you know, when you see God, you can be sure that God is seeing you. And when he's seeing you, the first response in holy God is to be one of, I am unclean, I'm unworthy, Lord, I just, yeah, I, I need you. You just fall again upon the mercy of God and the cross of Christ and that dependence, that I'm nothing without you. You are the sovereign one. You are the great one. And then it's only through that repentance does then God anoint your lips and then cause you to go and be the answer to those prayers. But we see here Nehemiah looking inward with repentance. So this is an interesting dynamic, church, as we think about the darkness of our times that we live in, in terms of our city and our culture and 
what's going on is that actually the church's responsibility, first and foremost, is to look at ourselves. That judgment begins with the house of God. He is taking responsibility on his own shoulders for the climate, the spiritual climate of his city. It's so easy it to blame what's going on upon other things. But actually, I find that often in the Christian life is that if we're truly in a place of prayer and wanting to be hearing from God and just say, Lord, kill that pride that's in me. Lord, show me where there's blind spots. Show me my heart. Weigh me, Lord. Is that what you see is that you don't blame the church. You don't blame other people. You don't blame leaders. You don't blame God. You actually come to a place of taking responsibility and say, look, I'm part of this. How many of you have ever caught yourself and... and, it's horrible to say, but I found myself where you blame the church about things. But it's, it's this understanding that w- you and I are the church. It's like spiritual self-harm. We're blaming the church, yet we are part of the church. We are one body. We are the body of Christ. Therefore, we must be really thinking about how we speak about other people. Uh, Rachel talked about the power of our words, did a brilliant message, uh, I thought, especially on the whole area of gossip. Uh, Nothing kills churches more than gossip. And if you, let me just give you one free bit of advice. I wasn't even going to talk about this, but maybe it's helpful for someone. If someone's talking to you about someone else, the reality is that is not your story to share. And so you need to tell them, sorry. You need to go talk to them and shut it down. When gossip's happening in the church, it's like wildfire because people think, oh yeah, well, you, know, I hear, I, you hear someone else's drama and emotion. It must be true. And we carry that and we go speak to other people. You just need to stop it. Say, that's not my story to tell and not allow that, often that poison to exist in the life of the church, but to speak to the person themselves. Jesus says this, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So the light, we as the light of the world, because Christ is in us, we don't get mad at the darkness of our city. We don't blame it. You never blame the dark for just being dark. You never go out at nighttime and have a go because it's nighttime. It's just what it is. But what we do do is we turn the light on by being Jesus. We let our light shine before the world. And so we we start to think, and this is Nehemiah, look, through prayer, I'm either going to be a conduit, a vessel, a clean vessel for the blessing of God to restore and rebuild the city, or I'm going to be a barrier to that. And that's why self-examination is so so important. I was thinking about that last verse where it's just in there. It's kind of odd, isn't it? And he was a cupbearer to the king. And, and, and being a cupbearer wasn't just tasting all the drinks to see if there's poison before he goes to the king. Actually, it was, a, a, it was 
like a cabinet position in the government. It was a huge, there's a huge level of responsibility. He would have been in charge of um, the finances and the budgets. And so here you have someone who has great power, great resources, wealth, responsibility, trust, and yet there's a meekness there. Meekness is something that has been under, well, understated, I suppose, in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. If you think about all the fruits of the Spirit, like meekness goes last, doesn't it? We think Jesus, meek and mild, all nice, like a baby. But actually, meekness is restrained and controlled power. You can say something, you can do something, but you choose not to. You see great meekness here, and I think the responsibility is on a number, particularly those, I think, who have wealth, who may, um, are leaders, who may own their own businesses, is to think about not the trappings and the comfort that comes from wealth and connection and being trustworthy and responsibility and the workload, but actually to humble yourself under the almighty hand of God and allow yourself to weep and to have compassion and to be broken for things that are happening miles away. And so maybe that's helpful to someone here this morning. And so I want to encourage us as a church this morning is to simply ask for the burden. And so we as a church, in our holy discontentment of what we're seeing right now, maybe in our lives or in just what's going on in our culture, is that we want to ground it in these foundational things. We want to be a people of compassion. That's what we're about, a people of compassion, a people of prayer and a people of repentance. I think that's the kind of church that God is looking for. I think that's the kind of church that will bring about kingdom power in a new and fresh way. A people who are on their knees, who aren't blaming the circumstances, but are saying, Lord, do a work in me. And let's ask for the burden of compassion. Let's ask for every day, Holy Spirit, give me your heart, give me your burden. When you're at work, when you're around, walking around the streets, what is your burden? And this is what we want to do in our prayer meetings. This is what we want to do in our home group gatherings. I want to show you a little video now. It's from the classic sermon film, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and so um, let's just show this for a couple of minutes just to give you a picture of what I'm trying to say. So when I was just thinking and praying about this, that came to my mind, and it's just a visual to see what I sense God wants to do in and through us regarding prayer in the life of the church, and also through our gatherings and our home groups. I can see us spread geographically throughout the city and beyond, and there's going to be these fires that are going to be lit. Uh, you know, we, we, we have our um, bi-weekly central prayer gatherings here on a Monday night, which amazing. We have scattered prayer in different venues and prayer walking. We have a prayer room. We want to create a culture of prayer. But I believe as we gather in our locations and just pray and ask the Holy Spirit for the burden for our city, for our area, it's going to be lights that are going to be lit. Revival fires are going to be lit throughout across 
um, the suburbs of Hull and beyond. And who knows what that kind of fruit and harvest that's going to bring. And so we see in that film, you know, Gandalf is trying to get help. And so that, that flame is, is calling for help all around. And that's what, that's what we want to see. We want to see those flames of, of passionate, heartfelt, repentant prayer. And that God will anoint us with compassion. And as we think about compassion, I just want to show you another quick clip. Is that as we go into this season, I want us as a church specifically to be prayed for in terms of compassion, for a compassion building. I talked about in March, our vision is that for this next year is that we wanted to uh, either build or to rent or just whatever God was hopefully bringing uh, our way, is that we want to do something for the city in terms of compassion that's going beyond what we're doing and we're doing amazing things. And the team are just incredible. But we sense that God has called us to this city to make a mark. And like Nehemiah, there's this compassion, there's this anguish, it's like enough is enough. That's what drives me. It's like we can't go on the way we go on. God, you must do something. And I believe we need something that's a statement to our city saying we are here for you in your crisis. We are here for you. And so for those of you who are new here or may have forgotten, I want to encourage you as a church, let's keep praying and interceding and let's keep crying out to God for some kind of compassion center um, for our church. So just to remind you, this is a little video of the church in, uh, at the vineyard in, in Ireland, Causeway Coast. That's just one of the videos. We showed a number of images. Um, you can catch it on the podcast um, from March when we did a vision series. And this is what we, we want to really you know, come to God in prayer about. Thank you for listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. We would love to connect with you and welcome you home to church. To find out more, go to wholevineyard.co.uk forward slash connect. And stay up to date with all that is going on in the life of our church. Go to hallvineyard.co.uk forward slash church news and sign up for our weekly mailing. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.